When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV, your source for all things Americana and roots music. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, folks. I'm Amy Wright. My guest today is Don McLean, the New York-born singer-songwriter who released his debut album Tapestry in the early 1970s and whose song American Pie spent four weeks on the Billboard charts and five decades in the minds of people all over the globe, eventually earning entry into the Library of Congress National Recording Registry in 2017, a very big honor. McLean fell in love with folk and early rock and roll music at a young age, and would go on to devote his life to touring and performing. His story career has always fascinated me, so it was a real pleasure to get to speak with him and learn about his life. Take a listen, and I'll catch up with you again at the end of our talk. Hi, Don. Welcome to Diddy TV. Well, thank you for having me. It is such a treat, such a pleasure, um, a real honor to have you visit with Diddy today and look forward to talking with you about your new album and, of course, uh, having the viewers learn a little bit about your storied career. Uh, you were born in New Rochelle, New York, and you started playing music at an early age, right? Yeah, well, it was an amazing thing because I was born uh, in New Rochelle, New York, which was outside of uh, New York City. <clears throat> and there was a lot of show business in New York, uh, believe it or not, because everything in the 1950s was in New York City, not California. Uh, films were in California, but TV, Broadway, all that was in New York. <clears throat> in fact, they made a big deal if they had a broadcast on television from, from California in 1959 or 5 or whatever. That was a big deal. Almost never happened. We had a lot of celebrities that lived in Nourishell. Um, Willie Mays, Della Reese, all kinds of singers and stuff from the 50s were around. And um, along with that came the you know, we were the, the group of teenagers, of course, all of us, this mass group of young people, and the music started. You know, the rock and roll and folk music together uh, became the rage. And, you know, like the Everly Brothers really were half of each. They were half folk and they were half uh, rock and roll. And Elvis Presley was very folk, you know, Love Me Tender, and these songs that he would sing. So the the idea of playing the guitar and singing uh, took hold uh, in my world in Nourishell like it never had before. And we would put on little shows and uh, people would sing and they would drag a banjo or a guitar out of the attic where their grandmother had one or their grandfather, you know, and guitars were appearing all over the place, you know, and this thing was growing. And it was the beginning, really, of a music uh, explosion and renaissance, really, that continued all the way through the 60s and the 70s. Um, 
because of that. So I was in the middle of that as a very as an 11 year old in 1956. So I started playing guitar a little bit, and the first time I went to a, uh, my mother got me lessons with some kind of a jazz teacher, and he wanted me to, you know, play in the key of F, you know, and do all these things, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to play like you know more folk guitar, but you couldn't find out how to do that any place. You know, there really were no instruction books or video. There was no video. You didn't have video. If you saw someone on TV for a minute, I remember that Pete Seeger used to have a television show on cable TV. And in the back of your TV, you could switch over to cable if you had the right TV. Well, I didn't. So a friend of mine would let me go over to his house, and he would switch it over to cable. And before Pete's show started, there would be... um, a bullfight from Spain. You'd see a bull get slaughtered. It was awful. And then and you'd see this the guys playing this banjo, you know. And so that was a chance I got to see other people on his show. And I'd study them, you know, real, watch very carefully to see how they're, how they're playing that guitar. So that's how you picked up tips. And so that's sort of got me sliding into it a little bit, you know. And um, Well, how old were you when you wrote your first song? I was 15, maybe. I've written maybe, uh, I don't know, 50 or 60 songs that I never recorded. Uh, I have the lyrics somewhere. I probably could figure out how they went if you pressed me. But Do you, do you remember what the first song was even about? Do you, do you recall? Yeah, it was, it was a little rag. Uh, I had heard the song San Francisco Bay Blues, which, well, you know, that song was, it goes, walking with my baby down by the San Francisco Bay. You ever heard that song? San Francisco Bay. Well, I wrote a song, was this kind of raggy, it went, once I had me a baby, now I've got me a friend. It's all over, I'm sad to say. So that was my song, Once I Had Me a Baby. That was, I think, the first song I wrote. <laughs> well, I think, I think you should just record that, because that's a great tune. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Well, you know, when you first started playing, because there's a lot of young performers out there, was, was it, did you have stage fright ever? Because you've played in front of whole stadiums of people. But I've had to. Have you ever uh, seen um, Albert Brooks's movie, Defending Your Life? <laughs> yes. Okay, well, that's all about, you know, facing your fear. Right. And being able to move on. And they're constantly pointing out how he did stupid things and didn't face his fear. I had enormous fear. Huge. I was afraid of plane flights. I didn't want to leave home. Um, I had stage fright. But... Uh, I would fight through it, you know, I would say, you know, God damn it, you're going to get up there and do this, and I don't care if you don't like it, do it, and I forced myself, you know, there was a thing that um, Teddy Roosevelt had asthma, you know, and he would tell his children, they would get tired, and he would say, make your body do it, make your body do (laughs) it, and I've been on many a tour, because I was on a swimming team, and we would have a, a big swim at the end of the year. We'd swim two miles. It was a race. And you, you damn near thought you were going to drown. 
but you said, no, I'm going to continue, keep on, I'm going to do this. And it was the best training in the world, because I've been in these tours, you know, sometimes you're so exhausted, I mean, you can't believe it, but you say, nope, it's going to happen, it's going to happen tonight. <clears throat> and you go out there and you find that energy and you find that, and you do it. So people um, don't realize the amazing resources of energy that they have. So when you first started, you were playing coffee houses and venues, just like every other musician when they start out. Um, how did that kind of touring and those types of venues, how did that prepare you for later on when you absolutely became very famous? Well, that's a very, that's a really good question. Um, I was watching um, an interview with Brooke Benton, who was one of my favorite singers, and uh, he said, you know, um, an artist has to be prepared for a hit record. It's a big thing that happens to you. And you've got to be prepared. You've got to know what you're going to do on stage. You've got to know about audiences. You've got to have experience and be ready for this success. Well, even though I had all that experience, I was not ready for the success that I had. I had no idea what that was. It took me a long time to adjust to that. But I did have a lot of experience, you know, in, in, these, in these little places. But it wasn't like professional, you know? It was like, uh, it was like high school. You know, um, people came in. If you were young, like I was very young, and I looked even younger, you know, kids would get out there, and you know how they applaud any kid that's their age and to make the kid feel like he's Elvis. So, you know, you had a lot of that um, supporting you and giving you validation. But when you, you get out in front of a big crowd of people of all ages who say, well, I think I'm going to go see that McLean guy, see what this is all about, you know, then you've got to prove yourself, and you better, you better be good. Otherwise, you get, you know, vilified in the press. And uh, you'll go home with your tail between your legs. This is a very nasty business. Uh, unless you know what you're doing. And you're ready to be rejected a whole lot. And hurt a whole lot. You shouldn't mess with it. Well, when you became famous, were you married at the time? Were you single at the time? And I, was single when I, I, was, I was single when I started out. Then I got married for a little while, and the success was so outrageous that it just screwed that all up. Then I was single for many, many years, then married again for a very long time. Now I'm single again. Well, so your first album was Tapestry. Of course, it has a similar name to Carol King's album, Tapestry, that came out right. around the, the same time. But that was put out prior to when you became mega-famous. That was before American Pie and Vincent and some of the other Correct. hits, right? American Pie posed a lot of uh, difficulties for me career-wise, but I really didn't care all that much because I really wasn't in love with being, you know, a superstar. Um, I was more in love with being a really good recording artist and songwriter and let the chips fall where they may. If American Pie had occurred five albums down the road, it would have been a proper build for a thing like that to happen. Sure. And, but it happened so early that I got blowback, which is, oh, well, he can't follow that. He's finished. 
<laughs> I thought I was finished too. I was fine with that. You know, I made a ton of money. I bought a house. I own my own house. I said, I can pay the taxes. Who needs this? You know, I don't care. But you're an artist, right? So it's kind of hard to stop creating. Yeah. No, I kept creating and I kept doing things, but um, I wasn't, it's not tennis. It's not baseball. It's not golf. It's, it's art. Right. And they, they turn it into statistics, you know. So my career trajectory has been very strange. I go, I've made many comebacks. You know, I've been up and then I've been down and then I came back again in the early 80s with a bunch of hits, surprised everybody. And oh, that's another story. And then down again and then came back in the 90s, you know, and then now I'm coming back again. There's all stuff on the internet and everything else. Probably my fifth comeback. Easy. Well, when you, when you write a song, uh, does it come easily or is it across the map? I mean, some are really easy, some are really hard, uh, lyrically or musically. How does that work for you? Well, I've made, I've made a lot of records. You know, I've made maybe 20 studio albums and then there's live albums and there must be 40 albums out there <clears throat> if you count compilations and with new tracks and, you know, all this stuff that's out there. After a while, it becomes this gigantic, you know, Don McLean floating thing. And um, it's really hard to make a new album and get anybody to really notice it because you have made so many other ones. And so really, this phase in my life is more about performing and um, doing some things with my trademarks and my and my albums and songs that I own, for example, the, the Time Life has come out and put me on this YouTube channel now, and I'm, a, I'm an internet uh, sensation. I mean, I'm getting millions of streams every week on this thing, and then we've opened up, loaded, uploaded um, 11 albums with 173 tracks. So one of the things that I've done is after my initial six albums for United Artists, every album after that reverted to me. So I own them all. And I own all the songs. And I own every type of broadcast that I might be a part of. That's part of the deal. You know, it's going to revert to me, whether it's a documentary or it's a TV special or a concert thing or whatever. So... I've got all these things coming back to me, and now I have this place to put them out. And so I've got material that'll last the next two or three years, you know. Um, and then we're going to be, if this pandemic ever goes away, uh, touring, you know, next year, the year after, the year after that, um, and building this site as long with, as lo as well as other endeavors that will go along with it. So. I have, a, for the first time really in my life, a kind of a machine behind me that I never had before. And I'm happy about it because I've done, have so much work that I want to bring forward that I really couldn't do it, you know, without that machine. So it's a, a time for that now. Well, you know, a lot of people don't realize that artists, especially when they're young, they um, give away their, the rights to a lot of their music. And I know they have to sit back and watch as somebody else makes money off their music, I, I know. sells their music to movies or whatever else they're selling it to. 
And, you know, it's it's painful because some of, uh, you know, your that's your creation. They're your babies. It's your art. Um, how does it feel to be back in control of, you know, some of that and being able to make those decisions yourself? I've always been in control from that's the beginning. Great. The reason why I got turned down by so many record labels, when you know that's probably part of my history, that I was rejected by 30 record companies before Tapestry came out. You'll find that sometimes it gets as high as 70. There weren't that many record labels around. <clears throat> it could have been 30, though. And the reason was I wasn't going to give him my publishing. Smart. Now, I didn't, I didn't have any brains behind that. That was just, I, I felt, these are mine. I created these, and I'm not going to give them to you. And I didn't know the publishing business the way I do now. I don't even know it that well now, but I know it much better than I did back then. It turns out, of course, that if I gave And I Love You So publishing to the guy running my record company, that he would receive royalties from every version of And I Love You So. Record royalties. I wouldn't. You know, I just get the version that mine was on. So it's a multiplication thing. And um, as somebody once said to me, publishing is the real estate of the music business. It is. That's what it is. So I, I, did, I had a degree in finance from college. That's why I spent, I was a little bit older than other guys. You know, most guys got out of high school, if that, and then they started singing, got famous, and by the time they were 20 or 19 or whatever, they were, I was 22 or three by the time I really started because I had this, gotten this degree in economics and finance. And um, boy, it, it, it really served me well. I could read contracts, you know, and said, tell somebody, you think I'm gonna sign that? You're crazy? <laughs> you know, I knew what this stuff meant. So I, and, you know, I'm not anything special, but I did manage to hold on. And uh, nobody had any idea that, that the publishing would be as valuable as it has become. I mean, it's, it's very, very valuable. It's gold. And you, you um, have had so many artists that have recorded your songs and really other famous artists like Madonna, Garth Brooks, uh, George Michael. Um, what is it like to see one of your own songs performed or sung in a completely different arrangement? Well, for example, George Michael's version of, Cry of uh, The Grave that I saw on TV, he sang that so much better than I did. I mean, he did such a beautiful version of that and sang it so well. Um, James Blake's version of Vincent um, and also... Um, Ed Sheeran's version and uh, Ellie Goulding, they sing this song beautifully. This is a hard song to sing. So I'm impressed with how talented these people are. Uh, they may be catering to, you know, young folks with a lot of music that I don't exactly understand. But when it comes to singing a song that I wrote that I know is hard to sing and, and make work, they do it easily. So this shows you just how talented they are. Well, I want to get into the, uh, to the new album here in a second, but um, I know you've got some other passions, too. I know that you have a, a, a nonprofit that you launched um, for kids. That's, um, I'm, I'm a spokesman for um, Teen Cancer, which is Roger Daltrey's 
foundation. And um, so every now and then I do something, if they ask me to, happy to do it. I also have a foundation myself that I'm going to give everything I have to when I'm gone. And it will do that kind of thing. You know, it'll be, uh, you know, doing things for people, homeless people, animals, you know, all kinds of things. Good stuff. So speaking of the new releases, because um, that was kind of the impetus for us talking to you today, you you have a new album out now called Still Playing Favorites. It's coming out, I guess. Still Playing Favorites. Yeah, it's a takeoff on an album I did in, in, in the 70s called Playing Favorites. So I'm still playing favorites, you know, 40 years later. And it's with my band, and it's albums that I... It's songs that I didn't write, and it, it tends toward gospel and rockabilly, and uh, it's a little folk in there, but... A um, little Bob Dylan. There's one Dylan song, yeah, most likely you go your way and I'll go mine. I had a lot of fun arranging that, and uh, came up with this little thing. Um, so it starts out... you love me and you're thinking of me but you you know you could be wrong like that and the band you know a lot of fun see just at the great song to watch you play that so your your whole face lit up and you started smiling so it's it that's great to see you know as a I love my guitars. I still do, man. You know, and the, all my friends that play guitar, uh, we call it the sickness. You know, <laughs> we can't go near a store without buying one. You know, I'm always looking around. I've got 50 guitars, you know, and I'll still go on Reverb.com and see if there's anything at the right price, you know, that I can buy. And, and oh, my I God. To, finally, I had to sell a few, you know. I finally sold a few. But Well, I'm a fiddle player. And it's funny because my husband's a guitar player and he can't have too many guitars. I mean, like you, like you're describing and violinists maybe have, you know, we have a couple, but we tend to stick with one instrument or so. And then guitar players, there's, I think we have, we have a lot of guitars in our house at this point. So, well, the instrument is amazing because he does take, you can look at Segovia, the greatest classical guitarist in the world. And Segovia, by the way, spent a summer in Larchmont, where I was near where I was born, at a hotel called the Bevan Hotel. And they used to, we used to go there and drink in college. And I was the only one that knew that the signed photograph from uh, Segovia, because he was uh, teaching some sort of a master class in New York City, and he didn't like New York City, so he, he went just outside of it to Larchmont by the, the sound there and found a location that was uh, halcyon and bucolic and restful and and he stayed at this place uh, <coughs> called the Bevan Hotel. So, you know, that's one style of, you, you listen to him, you can't believe that he can play Bach, you know, the way he does, especially with those fat fingers of his. I mean, he just, <laughs> it, it doesn't make any difference whether your fingers are long or short. It's what's in your head, you know. And so, and then you got you've got Montoya and Sabikas, these wonderful uh, flamenco guitarists, and then you've got Django Reinhardt doing something altogether different, combining 
flamenco with jazz in a toe. And he's only got two fingers on this hand. These fingers are burned off. And he moves faster than anybody. So this is an amazing instrument. And now, with all these pedals and things, these young musicians, the way they play bass, the way they play drums, the way they use technology, the way they play the guitar, over the top, unbelievable, unheard of in my day. The one thing I miss, though, is that they don't use this um, to play music. You know, they play riffs, and they play licks, and they expand that stuff, but they don't play songs. It's what bothers me about uh, flat pickers, you know, in Nashville, you know, who play like Doc Watson. You know, they're always playing fiddle tunes all the time. Why don't they play something more musical? I mean, Doc Watson would play, do that, you know. There's so many cool songs. You can play Blue Skies, man, you know, and bluegrass style or something. But get off of that, you know, up and down thing all the time, you know. It's not, they're not thinking. You know, early rock and roll, you know, had the Marcells. They took Blue Moon, which was, you know, a very slow, romantic song from the 40s. Blue Moon, you saw me standing alone. All right? Bing Crosby, right? And they said, bom, 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 that's what I wish they'd do. Agreed. And a good song is a good song, even if it's at a different tempo. But it's the melody and the lyrics that really stick in your head. Um, I'm a lover of a, of a really good song. And what I noticed about your new album was that every song had a great melody and a great rhythm to it. Oh, yeah. And uh, l- let's hear another yeah. one. Play me an excerpt of one of the other songs, songs off um, the album. Well, there's a cool one. <laughs> I love, I probably know 70% of every Johnny Cash song. <clears throat> I know 70% of all the songs he sang, okay? So probably maybe put out 500 songs. I know 350 of them, all right? And one that he wrote for Ernest Tubb when he was just getting started. Ernest Tubb was the best friend that uh, country music people ever had because he would promote them. He promoted Loretta Lynn, he promoted Johnny Cash, he promoted Patsy Cline. He was a terrific person. And um, so he, Cash wrote this song. Now, Cash took his sound from Ernest Tubb, if you listen to it. You're right, but anyway, the song goes, uh, Well, I'd do my best to hide this low-down feeling I'd try to tell myself there's nothing wrong they're always asking me about you, darling. It hurts me so to tell them that you're gone. If they asked me, I would be denying that I have been unhappy all along. But if they heard my heart, they'd hear it crying. Where's my darling when she coming home? Well, I asked myself a million times what's right for me to do. Try to lose these blues alone or hang around for you. Well, I make it pretty good until the moon comes shining through. Then I get so doggone lonesome. I love it. Doggone lonesome. That is such a classic Johnny Cla- Cash sound. 
Uh, what a great song. But, you know, Ernest Tubbs sings it, and it's just like Cash did it later on, but mm -hmm. he did that for Ernest Tubbs. Yeah, uh, there's wow. A, there's another cool blues on there, um, which I learned from Ray Charles. Um, While well, I was lying in bed with a fever, and I was burning up inside, my baby came into my bedroom, and I could hardly open my eyes. She said she was going to a pawn shop just across the track. She started packing some clothes in a hurry. She said she would be right back, but I ain't seen hide in the hair of my baby since that day. I ain't seen hide in the hair of my baby since she went away. Well, I remember so well when she slammed the door, but that girl didn't make it back no more. Ain't seen hide in the hair of my baby since that day. Really cute song. At the end, uh, he calls his Dr. Foster. And when the girl answers the phone, he says, I got a funny feeling the way he said, Doc, the way she said Dr. Foster had gone. <laughs> she said he left, yeah, he left with a lady patient about 24 hours ago. I put, I added two and two and here's what I got. I got, I'll never see that girl no more. <laughs> it's really funny. Oh, man. Hiding her hair. So... So when you went about selecting these songs, because there's so many great songs out there to choose from, how did you pick this particular subset of songs for this album? Well, there, there are songs that I was actually doing, you know, over, over, over the last 10 years or whatever. I'd throw one in that I'd kind of dig, you know, and do it with the band. I could have done 10 different ones, but I particularly like these for different reasons. And I like to put disparate sounds you know types of songs together so they had different feels but they were primarily in a kind of a country rock kind of gospel uh you know band of some sort there are there's one song at the end that i uh, um sang it's a david allen coe song called uh, she used to love me a lot and this is a song that johnny cash did but i really really felt I could sing this one. I'm really happy with that record. You know, it's a great song idea. Um, Let's I don't hear know it. if I can do it, but... Uh, uh, I saw her through the window today She was sitting in the Silver Spoon Cafe I started to keep going But something made me stop she used to love me a lot She looked lonely and I knew the cure Old memories would win her heart for sure I thought I'd go on in and give it my best shot She used to love me a lot I sat down beside her and she smiled She said, where have you been? It's been a while She was glad to see me I could almost read her thoughts She used to love me a lot 
She used to love me with a love that wouldn't die Looking at her now, I can't believe I said goodbye It would only take a minute to turn back the clock She used to love me a lot Wow, it's beautiful, beautiful Isn't that a good song? Oh wow, that's that's really beautiful. That's uh, you said that was David Allen Coe. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I was blown away, and the the last verse is great. So <laughs> this is the one thing she said. Then I panicked as she stood to walk away. As she stood in the door, I heard her say, "Yeah, I'm in need of something, but it's something you ain't got. But I used to love you a lot." You know how it is when a lady presses the reset button. <laughs> well, hey, no comment over here from button. the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, that's what that song's about, you know. Well, I have to say, um, we would love it when you get back to touring again, when we all can be together again. Um, love for you to stop yeah. by and play play some at Diddy um, here in Memphis. That would be great. Um, we'd love to have you in the studio at some point. Um, big fans of, of yours. Well, I'm going going to go hard. When I can get going, I'm going to be all over. I've got nothing to do at home. And I've got everything to do out on the road with people and music. So I've done all my chores at home. And uh, I'm in a stage in my life now where I'm just thankful that I can play and sing and entertain people and uh, tell them a little bit about what I've learned on my journey. And uh, so that's that's going to be great fun. And anytime I can get down south, I'm happy. Well, could I ask you for a personal favorite uh, of mine? Um, could you play just a smidgen of Vincent for me? Vincent, sure. Um, starry, starry night. Paint your palette blue and gray. Look out on a summer's day With eyes that know the darkness in my soul Shadows on the hills Sketch the trees and the daffodils Catch the breeze and the winter chills in colors on the snowy linen land Now I understand What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity How you tried to set them free they would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now Wow, thank you so much. That was. Uh... I want to say one more thing to you. Sure. Um, when I was young, you know, I knew Pete Seeger very well and um, he really loved me and uh, helped me. For about seven years, um, 
And he told me once, because he'd seen this a lot, I remember just out of nowhere, he said, Don, he said, don't ever commit suicide. He said, always stick around to see what happens next. And I'm telling the listeners out there, there's a lot of people who are very despondent and they're down and there are young people out there that can't, don't do that. Stick around to see what happens next because I have been about as low as you can go a few times in my life and you just soldier on, put one foot in front of the other. It might take a year, it might take two years, but you're going to find happiness again. And uh, so I just, in conjunction with singing that song, I just thought I would say that. No, it's a very important message because we're experiencing extraordinary times and yeah, a lot of folks are really suffering. And it's psychologically extraordinary. You know, we're, we're focused on the, you know, the, the situation, but the psychology of what's going on, especially with a young person who had it all planned out, stepping stones, you know, school, all of a sudden, I'm swimming. What's next? But remember, there'll be something next, and it will be great. You just got to remember that. And that's great advice from someone who's had a beautiful long career and has, has seen those ups and downs to be able to right. give to someone who's younger who who hasn't experienced all of that yet. So that's yeah, much well, appreciated. I'm you, I know what I'm talking about. Thank you, Don. We really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Don McLean. Be sure to listen to other Diddy TV podcasts for more of the leaders and legends in the Americana and Roots music scene. And don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.